I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Hey, before we get into the episode, I want to do something right now, and that is to promote our Patreon. If you like our podcast, you can support us at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. And uh, if you support us at $2 or more, you get an invite to our extremely dynamic and interesting and cool Discord community, where you can learn a recipe for a vegan omelet. Where you can read an article about uh, the minimum wage inflation, and also uh, you can see what everyone, whatever, whatever video game everyone's playing. Get the tweets uh, before they're tweeted. That's really what it is. <laughs> That's right. Get the tweets before they're tweeted. It's a great community to be a part of. Um, a diverse group of people thrown together because we all like a podcast, and you could be among them. You too could like a podcast. Yep, you really could. Uh, it is very fun, and you should do it. Uh, it's good. Um, all right, that advertisement is over. Now, <laughs> how's that for transition? We're really really going <laughs> back great. to the, the old days of the Magnificast, and we didn't know how to make a podcast. Um, that, that one... I still don't know how. We still don't know how. That part's over. Now we're at the next part. Um, the next part is, uh, boy, my dogs are barking, Matt. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah? Why is that? My dogs are barking... Uh, because uh, I walked so long today. I walked for six hours downtown in Toronto uh, with all kinds of other folks who were banging on pots and making a big stink for the climate. It was the climate strike uh, in Toronto and in lots of other places in Canada. And uh, it was great. We we're all out there doing our chants, um, talking about, uh, I don't know, why we're there for the climate. And I got to tell you, Matt, it was equal parts very cool and also uh, kind of a bummer. Uh, cool because there were lots of people, uh, but a bummer because I thought, man, there are a lot of dang churches in this city, and uh, I don't think they're all out here. And I don't really know. No, that's if, not good. I don't know if these people are watching the news, but <laughs> if I was watching the news and I went to church, I'd probably go to the climate strike. And in fact, that's exactly what I did. Um, so I don't know, Matt, uh, maybe you can help me parse this out. That's what I'm going to propose for this episode. I know you've been thinking a ton about the climate. You've been thinking a lot about, uh, climate, uh, change, climate reparations. I feel like, uh, you're talking to me about that kind of stuff all the time when we're not on air. Um, so I'm going to have you just walk me through it because my dogs are broken, which means my brain is broken. <laughs> it's not working. So you're going to have to, <laughs> you're going to have to carry the load. I think this time around. 
Uh, great. I would love to carry this load um, <laughs> up a hill because <laughs> your dogs are barking. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so today was the climate strike on February. Oh, nope. On Friday, September 23rd. <laughs> And uh, interestingly enough, uh, the climate strike happened in in Canada. It happened throughout Europe, but uh, not in the U.S. so much. Less so in the U.S. Um, who knows if it happened here? I've been trying to get to the bottom of that all day, and I have not <laughs> been very successful. Yeah, it's such a bummer. Okay, so the climate, it's bad, folks. If you listen to our podcast, you know that already. You know the climate is um, broken, and, we've, and we're the people who broke it. Um, you know that uh, if we don't... Uh, if we don't fix things, things are going to get far worse. And you also know that we're guaranteed 1.5 degrees Celsius of uh, an average global warming. So it's all bad. Um, the things that you see now are at that 1.5 degrees uh, level and, you know, even less than that, actually. But all, all I'm trying to say here is uh, the climate is bad. It's going to get worse. And unless we do something pretty significant, we are <laughs> up a creek without a paddle. Uh, your dogs that are barking are going to be the least of your worries. Anyways, dogs are going to be um, wet from swimming. <laughs> that's right. That's true. Um, you know, at this point, I, I think a lot of the, the early 2000s were really marked by this, like, extremely weird denialism of climate change. And I think, like, um, it, things still are pretty marked by climate denialism, but just in a different way. Um, but just the same. Um, I think for the most part now, even many conservatives uh, have accepted the idea that climate change has an anthropogenic cause, meaning that people are behind it. Uh, the human actions have caused climate change, more or less, um, I think is pretty clear. Uh, you know, there's still some cranks on the right who would say that's not true or it's all a hoax, but uh, they are cranks indeed. And I think that uh, it, it's more or less an accepted idea. Um, maybe I'm overstating that. But I think it's true for the most part. Um, it's human action that is organized along the lines of capitalist production and consumption that have caused uh, more and more CO2 to be pumped into the atmosphere um, but it's important to recognize, uh, and this is kind of the whole point of our episode today, it's important to recognize that not all humans are equally responsible for that CO2 being pumped into the atmosphere. Um, I always think of uh, of the folk singer Utah Phillips. Um, he's talking about labor, but I think in our case it makes sense here too. He says one of the most important functions of society becomes who controls the blame pattern, right? Like who who controls the uh, the ability to blame somebody else for a problem? And when it comes to climate change, uh, the blame pattern is way out of skew. I think, you know, we're at, at the top levels. If we just say it's like humans causing climate change or it's capitalism causing climate change, that's true. Totally. But like which humans and which capitalists is maybe a question that comes to mind. Um, so when it comes to climate change, there are some really important ways that we can start determining who exactly is to blame and uh, what can we do to hold them accountable. So here's an example that might drive the whole point home just a little bit. In August, Pakistan, uh, a country that you might have heard of, <laughs> saw some really horrible storms and some really awful flooding. The floods in Pakistan displaced 33 million people from their homes, and they also put huge portions of the country just, like, underwater. I think a third um, of it I saw was underwater. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. The record-breaking rainfall in Pakistan isn't just, like, mere coincidence. It's not just, like, nature doing its thing <laughs> or whatever. Um, Pakistan received 700% more rainfall than normal, which is a weather pattern that is, like, Fueled by a warming climate. I think that's like the only way to put it, right? Warmer air holds more water vapor. And that water vapor, 
materializes as rain <laughs> and it like floods everything. Um, it's it's true for Pakistan. It's true for um, uh, from the place I live in St. Louis. It's true for Kentucky. It's uh, true for Puerto Rico, which just uh, a, like you know has endured some incredibly awful hurricanes as well. Um, but you know when it comes to Pakistan, though, it's interesting because Pakistan is one of the you know it's like one of the latest regions that's devastated by climate change. But when it comes to like carbon emissions, Pakistan is far below other countries uh, like the U.S. or the EU. Um, when it comes to like how much carbon they're putting into the atmosphere, right? So the point here is that the CO2 that countries in the global north put into the atmosphere end up putting countries in the global south, like Pakistan, or, you know, uh, a country that's been heavily uh, colonized, like Puerto Rico, um, into like really vulnerable positions uh, when it comes to climate change. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the ways that um, climate change uh, is caused sort of not by all people, but by a specific group of people <laughs> specifically. <laughs> um, and basically we're going to try to figure out how to think through like who exactly is at fault for climate change and how we can know. And also like how a Christian response rooted in solidarity is really crucial for moving through the future of climate change. Um, we all live in one world in one place and uh, it's being affected by climate change and kind of figuring out how to um, move our like, you know, like our 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 horror and also our vague compassion into solidarity, I think is basically it. That's the only kind of tool we have moving forward. So um, I don't know, Dean, how does that sound? Does that seem all all good to you? Does that make sense? That sounds great. At this stage of the night, exhausted from a big climate march, that sounds fantastic. Great. Um, good. Okay. Your dogs are barking, but let me make them bark a little bit more here in a different way. All right. <laughs> someone's okay. at the door so <laughs> your dog is hungry feed it please um so like i said um people are responsible for climate change we know that to be true already but not all people are equally responsible and in fact um some people are more responsible than others so when it comes to climate change the thing that like the way that people talk about this um is like what's the ratio to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to all other molecules in the atmosphere, right? So the, these like very big uh, scientific questions. Um, so the the safe range for like how much carbon can be in the atmosphere is 350 parts per million. Um, so basically what that means is that like, the, these numbers are so hard to kind of get a grasp on as a person who is not very scientific myself. Um, you know, the only science I really know about is the immortal science of Marxism, Leninism <laughs> and course. not climate science, which is extremely problematic right now. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that there's like a particular like planetary boundary. Like there's a, um, there's an amount of carbon that can be in the air. Um, that's like, you know, safe ish. And then there's an, there's a, there's a way to go over that safe ish level um, where, uh, you know, life on earth becomes very problematic <laughs> and very difficult. So the, the, the general boundary is 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide to all the, to all other molecules in the air. And um, as it was reported in June, 2022 by the national oceanic and atmospheric administration or the NOAA, which is an, an American administration um, reported that we've broken through that ceiling of 350 parts per million into 414.72 parts per million, um, which is a big deal, right? So I think one thing, one way to kind of like get your mind around 
how hard this is to think about <laughs> is to think about it like this. Like it's a budget. There's a carbon budget for the entire world, right? And the carbon budget is 350 parts per million. Um, and uh, you don't want to be in the red because if you were, um, it's bad, right? If if you're a business and you're in the red, um, you know, whatever, you can just hope for the best next year and uh, maybe take out a loan or refinance your business or whatever. But uh, for when it comes to climate, if you're in the red, it's, it's bleak. You don't want to um, declare uh, planetary bankruptcy. That's right. You want to stand on top of your chair and <laughs> declare climate bankruptcy. Um, a 414 uh, parts per million carbon in the atmosphere um, ratio, though, is like breaking the budget. It's uh, it's shattering the ceiling. It's spending money you don't have, to put it in a sort of like crass um, metaphor. It's writing checks that your planetary tush can't cash. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly um so the question that we have to ask then like who who continues to write these te- checks that our tush cannot cash who is it is it pakistan uh no is it puerto rico no it's not um there's a lot of different ways to kind of measure who is uh polluting or who, who's emitting the most carbon right there's a lot of different ways to do this so for example um jason hickel actually uh uh, a person that we like to talk on talk about in this podcast, he wrote a book about degrowth, which is great. Um, back uh, a few years ago, he wrote a really interesting, um, pretty scientific article called "Quantifying National Responsibility for Climate Breakdown." So these numbers uh, that I'm about to tell you about in a minute are all based on 2015. So things uh, we're we're a ways out from 2015 now, but I think that they the trends that I'm going to tell you about these numbers have not necessarily changed. So they're they're pretty good (laughs) it's just to kind of stick with um so when it comes to who is producing the most carbon like who's putting the most carbon into the atmosphere um people in the united states they love to tell you something that's kind of complicated they love to tell you that china is actually producing uh the most carbon into the atmosphere and in 2015 in fact uh jason hickel says that china produced 29 percent of the proportion of total carbon and uh carbon emissions um so that's 2015 29 of the global carbon budget was produced by china and you might think um that's bad and it is bad you're right <laughs> the united states is right behind china at 15 percent, and the eu is at 10 percent um however that's 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 just one year that's one year um of carbon emissions in 2015. Uh, the more interesting way to um, analyze that data and kind of like parse it out is not just kind of like go year by year, but, you know, take um, take a, a spectrum of years. So Jason Hickel does just that. He says that, uh, you know, it, it actually is prob- pretty helpful if you look at like a, a, a pretty big chunk of years. So he looks at the carbon emissions by country um, from 1850 to 2015. So in all of those years. The United States produced 26% of the uh, the total carbon emissions uh, in, in the in the carbon budget, so that's pretty significant. Uh, right behind the U.S. in in that span of years from 1850 to 2015 is the EU, which pr- uh, produced 23%, and then third is China, which is 12. So I think that's helpful because um, you know uh, year by year countings are I mean they're important. I mean China shouldn't produce that much carbon, I would say, but um, it's more complicated than just kind of saying um, in any given year what's happened, right? We want to look at the uh, the sort of trend of the industrial revolution and kind of like look at these numbers in context because when you do that, uh, you get a clearer picture, I think, of who exactly has uh, 
put us in the position that we are in today. Right. I think, uh, I mean, this is something that we talked a lot about during COP26 last year. So uh, COP, if you don't know what it is, it stands for the Conference of Parties. There's going to be another one in November, COP27. Last year, there was a lot of talk around COP26 for a lot of reasons. I don't know. People expected it to be a big thing. Um, There was tons of talk at that time around exactly this story that China and India in particular were kind of the the two big problems um, at COP26, according to certain people, (laughs) the United States in particular. And uh, the fingers are always pointed at those countries because they are emitting and also their emissions are... um, you know, like, I don't know, their economies are growing and developing. And so their emissions are not on a path to like immediately, you know, reduce or whatever. And so people are always kind of pointing toward them as being uh, uniquely problematic. Um, but that story obscures so much. Uh, not only does it obscure this really long time frame that you're talking about, Matt, uh, with Jason Hickel, that I think is really helpful, you know, like cumulatively speaking, um, these countries have not emitted as much as uh, the others. Um, but uh, it also ignores all kinds of other reasons for those emissions and the growth in emissions. So surely, like, there's a lot of waste in all capitalist economies, and China and India do have capitalist economies. So, you know, not defending that. And also lots of unsustainable stuff. I don't know. We shouldn't have a lot of cars. China's buying a lot of cars. That's a bad thing. But uh, the big thing is, like, when China is doing a ton of emissions because of production, for instance, which is where a lot of emissions come from, Uh, That is because of the role that China plays in relieving the supply chain in the world, right? Uh, All the like shitty stuff that people buy in the United States that's manufactured in China, um, that the emissions are done in China, but the purpose of the emissions is actually related to the, the consumer demand in a place like the United States. You know, if uh, the United States manufactured everything that it buys in the U.S., its uh, emissions budget would be even worse uh, than it is now. Um, So that's the one big thing. It kind of ignores the supply chain issue, which I think is huge, like gigantic. Um, That really should probably be added to (laughs) to the U.S. budget in some way. Um, and, And, you know, the EU and whoever else. Uh, but the other thing it ignores is just other ways of breaking down data like per capita or the fact that China is a gigantic country with a lot of people in it and a lot of land. So, like, naturally, as an aggregate, it's going to have probably a bigger contribution, um, even if the, even all things being equal, it would just have a bigger contribution. Right. Because there's more people there, more landmass and so on. So I think uh, it's important to whenever we hear these kinds of numbers, like it's important to really break down what's being said there, because. The U.S. loves to skew these kinds of things so that it doesn't really have to take responsibility and it can like point to other countries that haven't really even gotten quite on their feet to say like, well, you need to slow down or change right away. Meanwhile, uh, the U.S. is actually like (laughs) our habits are, you know, consumer habits and so on are a big reason that these uh, countries have so much emissions in the first place. So as usual, it's a big global political economy issue, and the U.S. wants to uh, direct the attention elsewhere. It's very good at doing that. Yeah, that's right. Um, let's see. I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, and I'm going to mention it again to maybe drive this point home, because um, I don't want to be like an apologist for China, because like it, they don't need us to, and we don't need to be an apologist for them either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, whatever. Um, but I think this is like, to me, this helps kind of like understand the situation. So there is a 
like you said, Dean, like China is producing all kinds of things for the U.S. because um, because uh, the U.S. and other sort of like, you know, like imperialist hubs like the EU um, and the U.K. and you know all these kinds of other countries, they have globalized their production um, and, you know, shipped off their production overseas to countries who um, have like less strict like environmental guidelines and like workplace protections and so on. And China is like one of those places, right? Historically, um, and I think what's interesting is that, like, uh, you know, maybe you, you, it's hard to like, I think, grasp onto exactly what's happening, like, like when when we say like the the supply chain has been like shipped out. But like, here's here's an example: there is a city in China called Yiwu, and it's it's like the the nickname for the city is like Christmas Town. It's the town in China that like pushes out Christmas decorations for like the rest of the world. Um, they like Christmas trees, ornaments, all kinds of like, you know, crappy plastic stuff that you buy for Christmas. It's like made in this place, Christmas lights, tinsel, all of it, right. (laughs) All of it's happening there. And, um, you know, that is specifically a good that's produced for people in the global North in the, in in the U S it's in in North America, in the UK, all all these places where people celebrate Christmas. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly where people celebrate Christmas. Um, in 2019, it was so like the the production was like so off the charts that like the the city was like having to um, like limit energy consumption because they were so like you know dead set on meeting um, particular orders for the, the the global Christmas market. And like I, I I tell that story because like that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Like China is doing that not because people in China need Christmas stuff, but because like people in the United States want it. So it's like uh, all of this kinds of all of this, all, all of the consumption that uh, the United States does, it's like hidden away in the, uh, in the production of, uh, of other countries like China or like India or, or whatever. Right. So um, it, it really, really tangible material stuff like that. And, and that's kind of like what's behind some of these, these numbers. Yeah. And maybe to add one more piece too about the U S shifting blame around. So when it comes to China and India, it will do the finger pointing thing because those are big economies that it's also competing with and maybe kind of frightened by as well. But the most egregious thing is that the U.S. does this by bullying smaller countries also. And uh, there was an example very recently, um, just this month, uh, September 16th. Yeah, that's when this article is from. Um, John Kerry, uh, who is for some reason the United States' climate envoy, <laughs> for reasons I could not explain to you, uh, John Kerry went to uh, to Africa and he was part of a um, like a, a big conference of African countries. They were all talking about climate change. Uh, it was the African Ministerial Conference on the Environment. And uh, at this conference, <laughs> this is a quote from a Reuters article. It says, uh, Kerry acknowledged that the 48 countries of sub-Saharan Africa emit only 0.55 percent of global harmful emissions. But he said that every nation had to pull together in the face of a crisis. All of okay. us are threatened by emissions, and Mother Nature does not care where those emissions come from. Kerry told delegates, the challenge of the climate crisis comes from the crisis of emissions in every country. And like, It's so pathetic. Yeah. It's so pathetic. It's pathetic. It. It's just lying. And it is like paternalism, bullying. I mean, it's uh, it's violent for John Kerry to go to Africa and say this. And like, you know, to baldly admit, 
I understand that Africa basically doesn't contribute. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, listen, I think you guys should probably get a handle on this. It is uh, mm-hmm. extremely disgusting. Uh, you know, we have to, like, really pay attention to the fact that that is the story that, like, Democrats are sharing on the world stage. And that's a huge problem. Totally. Um and not only Democrats, but also uh, in the Republican Party, there is a conservative caucus uh, that is uh, organized around climate change who in the past um, loves to, to wag its finger at China. Um, and there's a Truth Out article that I'll, I'll share in the, in the notes for the show that says uh, that has a line from the, the uh, conservative climate caucus that says China is the greatest immediate obstacle to reducing world emissions. And it's like, <laughs> OK, I mean, fine. China should should emit less CO two. I agree, but also like, who is making an entire town produce Christmas trees? Like, is it China? No. And also, it's not. like, China just is not uh, emitting on the scale or kind of to the again per capita degree that the U.S. is. You know, one one common thing people say in the ecological movement is like the uh, rate of consumption and the the kind of mode of, of consumption in the U.S. and Europe, you know, global north economies, is such that, like, in Canada, I should keep saying Canada, I guess, because I live in this country now, um, you know, like, the, the mode of consumption in these countries is so high that if every single person in the world consumed at the same levels, you would need so many more Earths. Usually it's estimated between like three and four more Earths in order to meet that demand for every single human being on the planet. And we obviously just cannot do that. Like that's a physical limitation. We only have this one. That's it. <laughs> so uh, it's important too to just recognize that, that like at the end of the day, no, the US and uh, Canada and Europe, these other kinds of countries with a different consumption model, uh, they are worse. The rest of the world will not ever catch up to those means of consumption because it is like a hard physical limit. So, you know, like, I guess that's the point about degrowth. At a certain point, we have to understand that this is not just not unsustainable, but like a country like China or India, they also like literally cannot reach these levels of consumption anyway. (laughs) So like the U.S. should probably figure out what it's doing before complaining about, I don't know, other countries. Yep, exactly. Um, The reason, so I guess to answer the question, right? Like, who is responsible for um, climate change? Who's a who's responsible for climate emissions? It's the global north. It's the U.S. It's uh, Canada. It's the U.K. It's the EU. These uh, these countries that are um, not only built on a particular ethic of consumption, but who have also built like global networks that feed that consumption, right? Like that's the kind of other piece of it. So maybe pivoting a little bit to talk about that other part. Um, you know, these these like global north countries have uh, created these, you know, global systems that basically feed their economies cheap goods to consume, um, which kind of gets to to maybe the second the second part of this is like, why specifically is a country like Pakistan um, or a country like Puerto Rico or, you know, whatever, so, all these all these sort of different countries, why are they more vulnerable to climate change than uh, the United States? Um, and that's a great question. And one that actually a lot of people answer in different ways, but the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, uh, these uh, it's sort of a UN Council of Climate Scientists, um, they explained in uh, a previous uh, summary for policymakers that uh, climate change that climate change is driven by patterns of intersecting socioeconomic development, uh, unsustainable ocean and land use, 
inequity, marginalization, historical and ongoing patterns of inequity, such as colonialism. Um, so I think that's like the the other piece of this puzzle, right? So like, why are places like Puerto Rico, why are places like Pakistan, and to, you know, different extents, India and China and um, and other places, why are they um, more susceptible to climate change? And that's because of uh, histories of inequity, histories of colonialism. Uh, Dean, what's what's colonialism? <laughs> uh, quick softball, eh? Um, yeah, you know, uh, well, I think. I appreciate the way that um, colonialism is named as a force in the IPCC report for all its faults, because uh, colonialism, as you probably heard, uh, it's it has historically been the process whereby Europe uh, expanded. And uh, not only did it take over other countries and genocide all kinds of people and uh, basically redraw the world according to its own interests, but it set up a uh, global system in such a way that not only did Europe and its kind of uh, settler economies develop, but in order for that to happen, it had to actively underdevelop uh, whole parts of the world, right? They're kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, And underdevelopment is not the kind, not like a, uh, a prerequisite to development. It's not like, Oh, there's a kind of line of progress where underdeveloped economies will eventually develop. They just need time or whatever, um, it's because they're underdeveloped that these other countries can be developed. So what do I mean by that? For instance, like in the colonial situation in uh, Latin America, for example, like a region that has tons and tons of natural resources or, or Africa, uh, colonialism wants to extract as much uh, profit out of those areas using those resources and using labor that it has stolen or, or exploited uh, in order to make the most profit and uh, and develop the most infrastructure in the global north, right? That's the reason they have colonies is to suck all that that wealth out as much as they possibly can. And the goal is not to get those countries to kind of stand on their own feet because that would defeat the uh, the rate of exploitation, right? The the rate of profit. Uh, so when it comes to climate change, like the reason that matters is. Uh, not only are historically colonized countries usually in places that are susceptible to climate change because of their their actual climates, like you were talking about Pakistan, right? Like hotter places that tend to uh, be um, more susceptible just because of their, their regular climates or because they're closer to coastal regions and so on. Um, but also colonialism has set up a system where it's really difficult for those places to make the kinds of investments in infrastructure and so on that would make them climate resilient. Uh, And you can be climate resilient in lots of ways. Like there are different kinds of agriculture, for example, that are more climate resilient and that doesn't cost a lot of money, but it does cost like dropping out of the the global economic system. And that is a huge problem, a really huge challenge. Uh, And also like when a third of your country is underwater, I mean, if you don't have uh, a long history of investment in infrastructure, it's going to take you a long time to get yourself out from underneath a, a problem like that. So the effects of colonialism, even if people have gained their independence or a country has gained its independence, uh, nevertheless, like the way neocolonialism works is by kind of integrating or reintegrating all those countries into a fundamentally uh, unequal global economy such that, you know, they're never going to be able to like build the kind of resilient structures they need to bounce back from what will inevitably be bad consequences of climate change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I guess like, you know, the, the important piece here is that, um, well, a, a few things like you have to recognize that uh, 
these countries that have been colonized, like you're saying, Dean, like they're sort of like underdeveloped in, in a particular way, right? Like that they don't have the money to invest in things that would make them resilient in, face, in the face of climate change. And um, you also have to recognize, too, that uh, wealthier countries like, you know, those in the global north, they are resilient explicitly because they've colonized <laughs> other countries, right? Um like this is a this is a point that comes out of like decolonial literature in a lot of different places. But like, you know, if you love going on a great uh, field trip to Europe and seeing all of this like great Renaissance art and stuff, like you're doing that and that's cool. But like, you know, that Renaissance art exists because of the colonization of like of of Latin America by by the Spanish and by all these other people in, in Europe, right? And, and in a similar way, you can you can make some connections about. Uh, like climate resiliency or I mean just colonialism in general, right? Imperial countries have that money because they've like <laughs> expropriated it from um countries that they've colonized. So what I'm trying to say here, I guess in a really muddled kind of way, is that there's a direct causal link between countries that have endured colonization and countries that are vulnerable to climate change. Like they're vulnerable to climate change because of like colonialism. Um so uh, I, I guess like that that's an important piece of the puzzle because like, you know, we're kind of like stacking the things up here, right? On the one hand, who's responsible for climate change? It's countries in the global North who um, produce too much and consume too much. And then like, who is responsible for making countries uh, vulnerable to climate change? Also the same countries in the global North <laughs> who have like, who are causing climate change. So it's like, a, it's a double whammy. Um, the global countries in the global North, these like wealthy countries, the US, UK, EU, et cetera. Um, they are the ones who are causing like, um, these, you know, not just historical colonialism, not just like historical um, accumulations of wealth in a particular direction, but they've also like set people up uh, in such a way that like they will just suffer in the future because uh, they don't have the infrastructure to do anything else other than that. Yeah. And just to take some more tangible examples of, of kind of that process, right? Like, uh, like Haiti, I always think about this example because, oh, yeah. you know, like Jean-Bertrand Aristide, uh, the liberation theologian who became president of Haiti, famously asked France to pay back the money that it had demanded from Haiti when uh, Haiti had a, a rebellion and succeeded. And they paid France off, basically, to be like France demanded a, a sum to sort of compensate them for the loss of the colony. So Aristide was like, well, that is messed up. <laughs> we shouldn't have had to do that in the first place. And France should have to pay it back. And they should have to pay it back according to, you know, how that money would be in today's dollars, which he had calculated to be a certain number. And like, guess what? He's not the president of Haiti anymore. <laughs> to make a long story <laughs> short. Um, but, uh, you know, Haiti had like, it was wrecked by a, a hurricane um, not too long ago. And uh, that hurricane, like, you know, my organization that I work for, Development and Peace, like we raised a ton of money to send to Haiti, which is good. We should do that. I think if you live in the global north, you should be donating to some organization that can help get money to the global south. Um, and like we would probably always have to do that, I guess, in some respect. But also like <laughs> Haiti should just have the money that it had to give to France. I bet that would go a long way <laughs> trying to rebuild after yeah. a hurricane, right? Uh, or if you think of like Puerto Rico, which is currently going through uh, all kinds of blackouts and um, big problems on the island. It's like these are countries that uh, the global north has basically said, like, you depend on us and we depend on you. And that's why you can never actually stand in your own two feet. And we just like yeah. will not let you do it. 
I'm glad that you brought up the uh, the example of Haiti because um, it in it are some very good examples of the ways though that like people in uh, the United States at least, especially Christians, love to trick themselves into believing otherwise about those countries. Like for example, um, I used to work at an evangelical university. People know this about me. It's not <laughs> new information, <laughs> but uh, one time I did go to a uh, this like this meeting. Um, with this like uh, evangelical organization that was trying to get us to get students to sign up to go to these like trips abroad to Latin America. And uh, to me, that sounds cool. Like, yeah, of course, uh, my students should definitely go do that. And um, in the conversation, one other faculty member <laughs> who I'm embarrassed to have worked with in the past <laughs> um, was like, oh, do you ever send students to Haiti? And um the uh, the people from this organization were like, no, we don't really have any connections there or whatever. And then the faculty member responded like, oh, yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, that country, um, well, they suffer a lot of like uh, hurricanes and lots of earthquakes uh, because they practice voodoo specifically. And like, first <laughs> of all, a completely bonkers thing to say, just like just around people as if it was like a normal thing. <laughs> But like, uh, but but like, you know, I think it's a great example of the ways that evangelicals, uh, you know, um, will confuse themselves with uh, um, why why does a country not have resiliency when it comes to um, like climate disasters and other kinds of natural disasters? <laughs> and it's like it's not it, it couldn't be because of colonialism because that story is too complicated. It's because like uh, it's because of some other like very niche weird complaint that you would have about them. All this to say. Um, Christians uh, need to start thinking of this in a different way yeah. <laughs> and get away from this extremely bad way of thinking. Yep, it's true uh, because Haiti had a big hurricane and then just last year it had a big earthquake and it's going to have more of them. we got to figure that out. Um, so, I don't know. I guess, to me, Matt, when I think about all this stuff, I'm also always trying to think about what to do about it. Um, and again, I know you've been thinking about that a lot lately and, uh, I want to hear more about it. You keep telling me, you're like, we're going to talk about it in the pod and, uh, I'm ready for it to finally be spoiled. The big reveal. What are we supposed to do about this, Matt? Yeah. You know, I think all of these things combined, right? The, the fact that the global North is responsible for the most carbon emissions, the fact that the global North is also responsible for like the legacy of, uh, colonialism and the wealth transfers that kind of came with it, um, that should destroy the souls of Christians. I think that, like, there's no way that if you're a Christian person and you hear those kinds of stories and you kind of, like, understand that context, that you should be, like, okay with it, right? Like, um, in Christianity, um, it, there, there, there are two really important mandates that you get in the New Testament. I mean, there's all kinds of really important stuff in the New Testament. Don't get me wrong. Um, we love it. But there are two really important ones that Jesus says, right? And they are to love God and to love your neighbor. And I got to tell you, there is no way that you can love your neighbor while you're actively participating in, like, um, in, in, in systems that destroy their lives. Um, in systems that uh, produce so much, like, CO2 in the atmosphere that, like, uh, people will just basically have to live underwater from now on. That you can't do it. There's no love in that. There's no love in doing those types of things. Um, there's no love in ignoring the histories of colonialism. Um, and there's no love just pretending, like, these things are disconnected or, like, not causal factors. So I think that, like, you know, Christians should be like, pretty moved by these stories, or, or at least they should be... Uh, 
outrage in the sense that like they can't kind of go on living the same way. I mean, first of all, I know that's not true. I know that Christians will always kind of like pick the low road because that's what I've seen <laughs> historically. But what I'm saying is that there's a different a different way forward. And I think that is found in things like, you know, figuring out how to love your neighbor. Or what does it mean that your neighbor is like suffering because they're a third of their country is underwater? Um, and I'm really thinking a lot about something that I don't know, Dean, you probably know more about than I do, but the ways that Christians have like chosen solidarity over other types of like, uh, I don't know, political arrangements. Um, I, I think that like it, you know, sometimes in this podcast we get really weighed down on all the cool things that like people on the left do that Christians can learn from. But, um, on the other, in the other direction, I think the one thing that Christians have contributed a lot towards is thinking about solidarity with people who are like suffering and who are struggling. Um, so I think in light of that, right, if we're the people, um, in the global North who are responsible for the suffering and struggle of the people in the global South, like really explicitly and causally, um, then now more than ever is a time to, uh, stretch our solidarity muscles and really figure out like how, how can we be in solidarity with people who are like struggling, um, uh, because of climate fueled catastrophes. And there's a lot of different ways I think we can think about that. And I think maybe I have some questions for you, particularly about solidarity. But the one thing that really sticks out to me in my brain is just like, is the idea of of climate reparations. Mm -hmm. Um, This is an idea that has come up, I think, a handful of times in the last few years um, with regards to countries who are vulnerable to climate change because of all of the factors we've talked about already. Um, But I think it's a a good way to start thinking about solidarity. Um, And here's why. So... You know, if, if we're responsible, I, I think um, if we're responsible uh, because we've inherited societies built on the accumulation, like the long term historical accumulation of wealth um, from other countries, then I think like the only way to really struggle with other people is to be like, OK, <laughs> with giving them money. Um I think that reparations can mean a lot of different things, you know, like in terms of um, reparations comes up a lot in terms of like racial justice, especially like dealing with the legacy of chattel slavery in the United States. Um, And solidarity can mean, or I'm sorry, reparations can mean a lot of different things, right? Like reparations can mean anything from like direct cash transfers to people who are like directly impacted um, or, you know, transforming entire systems. So, like, you know, you you transform them so thoroughly that the anti-blackness and the white supremacy uh, that are inherent in them are, are kind of, like, transformed out. Um, so I, I think that these ideas are really compelling to me when, when I'm thinking about, like, what does it mean to be a Christian in a time where, like, my – just, like, living my life um, means that other people are vulnerable to climate change. So um, I don't know, Dean, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about solidarity and Christianity? Am I on the right track here? <laughs> I think give me, so. Give me the answers. I think so. You know, uh, something I really like about my job is uh, I work for this movement um, that basically like the mandate is global solidarity, international solidarity. And we move a ton of money to the global south. And it's very weird. I don't think I ever expected to be at a place in my life where I was uh, tasked with trying to get people to give money to a thing. Um, But what's great about it is uh, it is a solidarity movement. It is not a charity, right? So, like, there are all kinds of charities you can give money to in the world, and they give money to other people, I guess, and kind of hope for the best. 
But what's great about kind of the model that we have is that, uh, you know, we will give a ton of money to Haiti, especially when they have a big earthquake. Like last year, we raised a bunch a bunch of money for uh, Haiti, and that's great. Um, and uh, you've got to give to those kind of emergency situations in a unique way for sure. But the philosophy that we have is that, like, we want to stick around in those countries that we uh, give to after the money is there. And we don't stick around as, like, staff of my organization. Like, we don't have any staff in the Global South. Um, We stick around in terms of, like, we maintain relationships with the people that we know who live in those countries. And we try to figure out what are actually the systemic reasons that, like, there was such a huge disaster in the first place. So... Haiti, for instance, Um, our partners in Haiti do all kinds of really amazing work. Like there's a a really cool engineering school that we work with that like researches and builds uh, houses that are resilient to earthquakes and like none of their houses fell during the the last earthquake. Um, Extremely cool. Trying to like solve an infrastructural problem. Um, The same with uh, like we support a handful of like women's organizations in Haiti and there's kind of a lot of care work that goes on, especially in disaster situations. So it's like important to think about how that's a gendered issue and so on. Right. So like I think when I think about solidarity and climate change, especially in the global south, like to me, it's like climate reparations has to come in the form of both direct transfers of of cash. Like when there's a climate emergency, you should just send money to them (laughs) like they know how to spend it and they'll do it better than whatever. (laughs) the red cross or something um and uh at the same time like you can't do that without also asking harder questions about like why is it so difficult for haiti to rebuild why is it so difficult for them uh to uh deal with the problem you know cuba gets hit by lots of hurricanes and um not to say that they have it easy but like they have a whole system based in solidarity in that country and based in investment in infrastructure with the little money that they have that makes it make sense when a disaster happens. Uh, so, you know, for me, like, I think that's the big thing, like finding ways to actually uh, tackle and address uh, the fact that these crises are global, they're interconnected, they're integral in really complicated ways means that like, we need to be able to both uh, shift resources around and also find ways to, to tackle that that stuff, whether it's like, I mean, I think that's everything. I think it's like going to a climate rally for sure. I think it's uh, trying to write nasty letters or or kind letters or whatever you need to do strategically to get your MP or your, your representative to listen to you and pass better legislation, right? It means like calling for an end of global capitalism and doing all the things you have to do to, to make that happen. But uh, most simply, I, I think it really does mean like figuring out how to build those relationships so there is a kind of structural change on the horizon and not just like... I don't know, um, sending money or just kind of ignoring it and hoping for the best. Right. Yeah. I mean, so first of all, that's good. Thank you for saying those things. That's helpful. As you, you know more about solidarity and like, uh, the ways that Christians are doing solidarity in the world than I do. I think that's great. Um, the other thing I I was thinking about though, that like, you know, there are these material things that you can actually do writing letters, you know, sending money, trying to get your, (laughs) your, your elected official to listen to you, all those things are important. I also think there's something like pretty empowering about the outlook of solidarity as like a, you know, as, as a, a lens to kind of think through global action, because when it comes to climate change, it is like easy to become a doomer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, <laughs> it is, it's so bad. The situation is, is really awful. Um, by 2050, uh, if things don't change, 
things will, you know, be irreparably damaged and it could get worse, right? But I, I guess, like, the thing that I am really, like, what Christian Solidarity has, like, really impressed upon me, is just, like, the things I've learned about it, is the way that it changes you as a person. Because, like, Solidarity, like you were saying, Dean, is, like, very different than Charity, right? Charity is just, like, you know, you give somebody some money and kind of, like, you know, hope the Red Cross knows what they're doing or whatever. But I think Solidarity is really important because it's so much more than that. Like, Solidarity is, in the labor movement, when, when we talk about it, we talk about an injury to one is an injury to all, right? And I think that's, like, a, a good encapsulation of, like, what solidarity actually means or what it actually looks like. Like, what do you have to do and how do you have to start thinking about yourself to count yourselves among the people um, who are struggling against climate catastrophe rather than the people who, like, um, have a vested interest in, like, keeping that narrative quiet or something mm-hmm. or or like you know, keep to keep wagging your finger at um, <laughs> at Ghana or whatever <laughs> about their uh, their carbon emissions. Like, how do you count yourself among the people who are um, who are suffering? Rather, right? Like, what do you have to do? And that's not just not that's not like a mental exercise solely. I mean, it's an outlook. It's a comportment. But it's also like you know, you you kind of get there by doing something in particular. Yeah. Um, writing letters or making connections or learning about something or, or you know, writing a letter on behalf of somebody or, or whatever, all these things. All to say, I think solidarity is like, it's like the most important thing or, or it's like the most important outlook that we can kind of pick up, I think, during um, this extremely tumultuous time of climate change because without an idea of solidarity, um, it is all doomerism. I don't know. W- without a way to kind of count yourself among um, people who are suffering and struggling, I think all you have is, 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 you know, doom and gloom and that's it. And, uh, that's not how I want to live. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think solidarity also is a word that is, uh, complicated to, de- to define. It has some problems even, and all that kind of stuff is true. Uh, but Pope Francis has a really neat way of summarizing it in fertility where he says, uh, solidarity means thinking and acting in terms of community. And that's the definition I always give when I have to talk to like high school students and uh, just people that maybe you don't have a lot of time to talk with in general. Uh, I always say that's what it means, thinking and acting in terms of community. When you think about that in a global kind of register, it's like, what would you have to do to make it true that you are thinking and acting in such a way that the whole world feels like part of your community? And like, chances are you'll probably think and act in ways that are different than the way that you are now, because the way that we live doesn't encourage you to think that way, right? It, it encourages you to think and act in such a way that you're an atomized individual kind of out to survive or get what you can and, and you know, <laughs> whatever, lead your precarious life. And uh, I think it's really important to transform that perception. I think it also leads to more empowered local actions, too. When we hear John Kerry say something extremely violent in Africa, um, it matters that we also don't let Democrats off the hook for that kind of stuff. You know, Joe Biden like passed this big bill that people were touting as like a huge win for the climate movement. And like, I don't know, it's better than literally zero that for sure. And I'm sure there are things in it to be happy about. But at the end of the day, like it is just not, it, it is not going to make Pakistan not flood again because it's not brave enough. Like it is not courageous enough. Um, you know, in November and COP27, all, all these world leaders are just going to get together in a room and uh, all the people in the global north are going to like complain about, I don't know, China and India. And like they're going to commit themselves to extremely gradually lowering their emissions by like 2050 or whatever at a time when like they will have already missed the deadline. Right. And 
if we think and act in terms of community, it means, I think, really paying attention to the fact that, like, the people who are suffering in the global south now in uh, colonized places in poor parts of the world, um, those are the people who are going to suffer more and more and more down the line. And, like, how do we get ahead of that? I think it means, like, really figuring out how to pressure the, the people in power. I mean, that's always been the burden and responsibility of people who live in the imperial core. When you're in the middle of where all the violence is kind of emanating like, how do you maybe find ways to to sap the power, right? How do you, where do you find the plugs so that you can unplug them? Uh, I think that's kind of what we're stuck with. And and having that global vision of solidarity, uh, maybe, at least for me, it like helps me sustain myself a little bit in that struggle, thinking and acting in terms of community. What does it mean for me to be in community with the people who are suffering in Pakistan right now? It means like, figuring out how to tell people in Canada, like, I'm not going to accept, you know, weak stuff at COP27. I want to see more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, when you put it that way, it does sound kind of like very exciting and very cool. But I think it's also worth stressing the ways that solidarity work can also be very boring and very mundane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I've been reading this book uh, that is very neat. It's like, um, man, if you follow me on Twitter, you already know that I'm exce- I'm like very obsessed with these like old Orbis books and how cool they look, like the graphic design on them. Um, anyways, there's this book uh, that's called Solidarity with the People of Nicaragua by James McGinnis. And the book is so wild. It's like 150 pages. And it's really just a bunch of stories about some extremely small and local ways that uh, people in the United States, Christians in the United States, were in solidarity with the people of Nicaragua uh, before the revolution. There's one chapter that I read kind of extensively last night because, um, well, it's about people in St. Louis. That's why I was, like, specifically interested. But basically, it's just, like, these stories of these families in St. Louis who were, like, writing letters and collecting school supplies for people in Nicaragua. And they, like, formed these, like, pretty uh, important bonds with them, right? These people who were, like, struggling, not in terms of climate change, but in terms, like, of politics, right? And that stuff is small it's local and it's like not like exciting (laughs) it's not storming the bastille or whatever (laughs) um but it's like pretty important because it changes you as a person it changes the people that you're talking to but also like it gives you a perspective that you need to do that kind of work i Mm -hmm. think right to do the transformative work or to to it gives you the uh, uh, maybe this is not a good word to use, but it gives you the ammunition you need to like uh go to an elected official and tell them like what what is up yeah, you know, uh, maybe to think of a tangible example like that. So last fall, almost a year ago now, I was on a, a call and there was this really neat uh, sister from Brazil and she does work with the Pastoral Land Commission in Brazil. And that group is like a ministry of the bishops. It's extremely cool. You should look it up if you've never heard of it. It's the abbreviation in Portuguese is CPT. Um, I couldn't tell you what it is, but it's the Pastoral Land Commission in English. And uh, they're on Twitter even. They're great. Uh, But their whole thing is they document um, abuses against landless people and indigenous peoples. And uh, that's like their whole thing is they're just trying to, um, you know, like create some data and uh, stand up for people who otherwise wouldn't would just be ignored. So this sister has been working with the Land Commission forever and uh, she, her name is Jean Bellini. There's a, a great New Yorker profile about her actually out there somewhere. Um, so anyway, she was, we were on this call and uh, we were talking to all these high school students with her. She was also on the call. And, you know, you're trying to get like high school students fired up about whatever solidarity and explain it to them and figure it out. 
And uh, so here we have this this great sister. And I asked her this question that I thought would be kind of like, I don't know, like a pretty low bar, like inspiring thing for students to hear. And uh, the question was, what's like a story of something that happened with the CPT that that was like really encouraging to you specifically? And uh, and the way I phrased it was, uh, what's a big win for you at the CPT? And uh, she like paused for a minute and she was like, you know what? This is actually really hard to answer because we like don't have a lot of wins. <laughs> That's like one of the big challenges at the CPT. We, we don't win a lot of things and like that's really difficult. But she said what's encouraging is that even though we lose, like people keep showing up. And like that is why I keep showing up because people keep going. And like that is the hard work of solidarity, right? And I like that really stuck with me and still sticks with me, especially thinking about climate change. Like we are losing every day <laughs> in climate change um, in a big way, like a really big way. But it, like people are showing up and the hope is that you can get more people to show up because like literally what else could you do? Right. And uh, the only thing that can sustain that is knowing that like people are going to show up. So I, all that to say, like uh, the reason that came to mind is all that came out of just like trying to organize a pretty mundane event. Right. Um, getting this uh, this great sister to talk to these high school students virtually um, but it's those little things that can really trigger like something that really sticks with you and, and stays with you for those big actions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can't underestimate how important it is. The things that you do, <laughs> <laughs> as it turns out, they really matter, uh, what you get involved in personally. Um, okay. So I guess we're getting close to the end of the hour here. Let me reiterate these things. Um, climate change, who's responsible people in the global North. Uh, why are countries in the uh, the global south or just like poor countries more vulnerable to climate change? It's because countries in the global north have colonized them in the past. <laughs> what does that mean for us as people who live in the imperial core? It means trying to practice uh, solidarity, moving away from like atomized individual beings in the imperial core and towards uh, people who think of, uh, you know, an injury, an injury to one as being an injury to all, uh, which is, you know, easier said than done for sure. but. Um, I think it is an orienting way to start like parsing out what do we do in in light of like a a true catastrophe like uh, climate change, like the collapse of all kinds of uh, small ecological systems and the warming of the planet. Lots of bad stuff. But um, if there's any way through it, I mean, for better or for worse through it, it's solidarity. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, if you uh, support us at $2 or more, you can get an invite to our cool Discord channel where we talk about recipes, cats, pets, uh, climate change, uh, Marxism, and uh, sometimes we even read a book together. Uh, you also get access to a cool behind-the-scenes, behind-the-paywall podcast called The Lock-In, where Dean and I um, have a deep mythos of being youth group pastors and we <laughs> kind of do some silly things. Okay. Um, anyways, our intro music is by Mario Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord
Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.